Amen. Is anyone else glad that while your sins may be many, his mercy is more? Is anybody else not thrilled by that blessed truth of the gospel? Uh, perfectly stated and sung as it's reflected then uh, in Romans where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Thank you, John leading us and uh, worship team. Thank you, choir. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Here we are, not even yet a year into the book of Romans, and I'm already to chapter 7. We are just flying through this book. Now, to give you context, this is not to say I'm like the great uh, English Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It took him eight years, alright? So, and actually I think that only got him through the first 11 chapters. So, so... There is context here, uh, the fact that we are already, that's how I'm saying it, we're already on chapter 7, and it's the first Sunday in November, so we're a month out from our year anniversary. So, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, or do you not know, brethren... For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. Let me go ahead and comment here so I don't lose some of you in those words, alright? Uh, Paul is not, this, Paul's intent here is not to make a comment about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He does that in 1 Corinthians 7. All right. This is merely a simple analogy. So just stick with me. We'll flesh it out. But so don't get bogged down in, in what may be some uh, troubling language. All right. For some folks. All right. So he's not he's not really saying anything about marriage as much as he is about law. All right. Verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should be bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should we should. Now serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Would you agree that it is a helpful skill to develop, to learn how to ask good questions? I would think that's a helpful skill, and I think it does require a bit of training, or at least thought, to learn how to ask 
good questions. And this, in fact, might challenge what I would call a common fallacy in our culture today. Have any of you ever heard the statement, there's no such thing as a bad question? Y'all heard this? Now, I understand those in a teaching context, if you're teaching material and somebody doesn't understand, you may encourage them to ask a question by saying, there's no bad question, all right, in order to clarify. But the larger truth is there are bad questions, right? For example, I did hear a high school teacher say this. She was asked by a 17-year-old student of hers, where do the clouds go at night? It's a bad question. All right, where do the... In case you're wondering and you're thinking, oh, where do they go? All right, so um, that may say something about you. But you know where I find bad questions showing up more often than not? Sports interviews. All right? And in particular, the interview of the losing team or player. And I don't know why these people are supposed to be professionals. Some of them have gone to school for broadcasting and journalism, and yet all of them ask at least two questions. This is to the loser. How do you feel right now? You all have heard this, right? It's a bad question. I feel bad. Here's the other one. What could you have done differently? Well, we could have won. All right, no, you know, that's a bad... What do you mean, what could I have done? I could have not fumbled the ball on the one-yard line. I don't know. Uh, I could have not, you know, double-bogeyed you know, the par three. I don't know. What could I not have done? I don't know. It's a bad question. No, I, th- I think there is a a skill here in learning to ask the right questions. And I think sometimes that may require learning how to ask questions that maybe you wouldn't initially think you need to ask. Uh, That may sound like a difficult thing to do, but I think Romans 7 is an example of this. Now, now really, what Paul's going to do in Romans 7 is a carryover from what he started in Romans 6 and verse 15. That verse that begins with the question, Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And chapter 6 begins Paul's discussion of sanctification, and he's fleshing these things out. These critics who would challenge him to say, Paul, your view of grace is seriously problematic. Because now there's no incentive to live righteously. That's what they would suggest. And in fact, you, you kind of, you, you kind of tossed the entirety of the law out the window. What, what, what are, what are you doing here? And so, so Paul then launches into an answer to this that fundamentally, here's the answer. You don't understand the gospel if that's what you think I'm doing. And in fact, you don't understand law and gospel if you don't understand what I'm doing. That if you think my view of grace is in fact some kind of then license to sin, you've not heard everything I've said. That is not how the law functions. Paul is offering an important corrective to say, the law doesn't make me right with God, the law doesn't make me moral. Instead, the law does something really problematic for us as lost unbelievers. You know, as, as unregenerate people, the law makes more explicit... 
my wretchedness. It reveals, unlike anything else, that I do have a rebellious heart. It shows me when God says, you shall have no other God before me, the law does show me I've got a lot of other gods sometimes. When it says, you shall always treat God's name with respect, I realize I don't always treat God's name with respect. When it says about relationships and honoring marriage and family, when it says you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't covet, you shouldn't lie, when it has these things and then explains them further, that these are also matters of the heart, the law stands against me. In fact, Paul has done something already in chapter 6, where he said, so part of the problem here is you don't understand, to be under the law is to be under sin. It is to be in dominion to sin. And so he gives that long explanation of how the gospel then takes us from being slaves of sin to slaves of Christ. Now chapter 7 opens with a question implied that maybe we've never thought to ask. But it's important. So what is our relationship to the law? What role does the law play, maybe even beyond what you just described? Does that really mean I don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments? Does this mean I can ignore large chunks of the Old Testament? Does this mean this is somehow now null and void, and so now these commandments don't mean anything, and, and so now does that mean I'm, I'm free to lie, steal, kill, covet? In other words, is all, is all this fair game now? Do I, can I just throw all that out of the window? So Paul is now dealing with this question, though you and I may not have, have intentionally thought about the importance of this question It's critical because it helps us understand there was a relationship between sin and law. If sin is our master as an unbeliever before the gospel, if I am under the dominion and slavery of sin, then the law stands as judge over me. So I've got two problems. Not only am I enslaved to sin and then unable to do anything but that which is characterized as sinful, but also the law then comes in and says, you are doomed to the death penalty. So, as an unbeliever, I am under sin and under law. So now Paul is going to move from the sin to the law. And so to do this, uh, here, here's what Paul's doing, and he's really going to mirror a lot of the language, a lot of the phrases about, the, about being in dominion of sin. He's now going to transfer to law and explain this a bit more carefully, so that really chapter 7, in its entirety, is about this issue of the law, the gospel, my ongoing relationship with the law, and yet at the same time, this other law that may be working against me, this is all kind of part and parcel to what Paul's going to do here in chapter 7. So to begin, as we begin in the first six verses, here's how Paul begins this. Paul's going to begin by arguing that believers are free from the dominion of the law, which in turn allows faithful service to Christ. In other words, this is a, a further elaboration on the question. What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? And Paul says, certainly not. He explains the sin issue. We've been transferred to slavery to Christ. So our life should be indicative of that. And and now he's going to then add to this a, a discussion about now what is our relationship to the law. The same kind of principle applies. Just as I need to die to sin, I need to die to the law. And Paul is then going to make this connection to say, since I am now dead to the law, I'm no longer under its condemnation. And, and this, this means not that I've been 
freed from the law to live as I please. I've been freed from the law so that I can live in service to Jesus Christ. Just like the argument we made in chapter 6, we'll do it in a similar similar way in chapter 7. So this is what he's getting at. We can offer genuine service and experience meaningful growth, growth as a believer, because in Christ we are dead dead to the law. And in fact, really what Paul is doing here is he is implying that the only way you and I can live faithful lives is by first being dead to the law. So in other words, something's got to be done about my sin problem, my problematic relationship with sin, and something's got to be done about my problematic relationship with the law. We may not always recognize as Gentiles we have a problematic relationship with the law, but that is in fact essential, I think, to biblical theology about the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. The outline's a bit different, and that I don't necessarily have phrases or sentences. We're going to follow Paul's argument as he lays it out for us. All right. So if you want to fill in blanks, uh, here's here's how we're, we're going to follow each part uh, of what Paul's doing. As Paul's going to state his point, illustrate his point, and apply his point uh, like a good preacher. He doesn't put a poem at the end. Well, I mean, eventually in Romans he gets to some poems, but for now he doesn't put a poem at the end. But right now he does do the you know faithful work of one who is going to rightly uh, express truth. And he's going to give us a really logical sequence uh, here to, uh, to present this, this primary principle. So number one, if you want to fill in fun little blanks, here you go. The principle stated. The place where Paul begins is he, sim- he simply states the principle. Now, he, he does so with, with, a, with a common method. He's asking what's called a rhetorical question. We've talked about this before. Often it's assumed a rhetorical question is one that doesn't require you to answer, and yes, that that perhaps is part of it, but really a rhetorical question is more appropriately a question that makes a point. So it's not really a question, it's a statement. We do this all the time, right? We might say, this is a question, have you ever been asked a question that's really an accusation against you, alright? Okay, so Paul's doing something similar, this is a rhetorical question, And that he's going to make a point by asking it. Verse 1. Or do you not know, which is always a great way to begin, because Paul's literally saying, now you're not ignorant of the fact, are you? Alright, so it's fairly aggressive. Don't, Don't you know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law. Now you want to stop there for a minute. We could spend the rest of our time talking about the options for what he's talking about here. Don't worry. We're not going to do that, all right? If you'd like more information about that, I would be glad to point you to the commentaries that spend dozens and dozens of pages fleshing this out. And that's, that's appropriate because really, you do ask, what's he talking about? Who's, is he only talking to Jews? And is he only talking about the law of Moses? Or is he talking to everybody, Jew and Gentile? And the word law there just applies to the idea of law in general. I split the middle. I think what Paul is doing here is he is addressing Jews and Gentiles. I don't think there's any reason to doubt that the Gentiles who are part of the congregation in Rome, because of the proper preaching and teaching of the gospel, would have been familiarized with the Old Testament law. I mean, what was the Bible of the early church? The Old Testament. So there's no reason to think these Gentiles didn't know, at least to some degree, have a familiarity with the law. Nonetheless... 
I think while law here probably has uh, more in mind the law of Moses, we can see how Paul's principle would apply to the idea of law in general. All right. So here, let's let's uh, let's then follow this along. Just as to know he's talking about, I think he's talking to Jew and Gentile alike, and I think he's he's indicating, yeah, everybody who's listening to him understands how the law works. Perhaps most specifically the Mosaic law, but also any law. And so here's how he says it. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now you hear that and you think, got it, right? I mean, it is pretty straightforward. Doesn't this naturally make sense? The law rules, has dominion over, is the authority over you as long as you're alive. Now, let's, let's use a simple illustration of this. Though Paul's going to use one, let's, let's use another one just to make sure we have, have the point here. Let's say you rob a series of banks and you get caught robbing the last one. And here you are in a, in a trial and before a jury and the judge, they make the case. You are convicted of the crime and the moment the judge sentences you, to 25,000 years in prison, wraps the gavel, you drop dead of a heart attack. What do they do with you? Do they then put you in prison? No. At that point, what happens? You're no longer bound to the law, are you? Right? And you can think about that generally. are, Are dead people arrested for breaking the speed limit? I don't think so. All right. In other words, that would be an interesting situation if that ever happened. Right. So this is what he's getting at. Simple principle. Principle stated. Now, you're going to have to stick with him as he fleshes out why this matters. But this is his fundamental point. The law is is the dominion over you. It is the ruling, judging reality of life as long as you're alive. This becomes particularly problematic when you translate that spiritually Because then what that means is the law of God stands over me, condemning me to death for eternity. So this is a big deal. Now, let's move on then to number two. Now, before you get too excited and think, wow, he's moving fast. It'll slow down on point three. All right. Number two, the principle illustrated. Now, again, let's make it clear. Just as that when I stopped after I read verses 2 and 3, Paul is not making a point about marriage. This is not part of the complicated discussion about marriage, divorce, uh, reasons for divorce, and, and thereby, you know, biblically legitimate reasons to get remarried. This is not Paul's concern here. Paul is giving a simple analogy. And in fact, Paul's, Paul's points aren't going to line up here, all right? And maybe you noticed it as we read it, and I'll point it out when we get to it. Paul's just making this simple point by illustrating with a married couple. And it could be that Paul is, is addressing a woman married to her husband, because in both Roman law and even the Mosaic law, the instruction about marriage and divorce, remarriage, is directed toward the husband. In other words, especially in Roman law, there wasn't, you know, as much freedom for the wife, you know, to to divorce, though there was. Uh, anyway, so that's probably why he might be addressing, you know, the woman here in particular. 
So he says, verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So, law has dominion over you as long as you're alive. For example, got a married couple and uh, the husband dies, that woman is then free to remarry. Now, to clarify then, he goes into verse 3, so then if while her husband lives, and to me the implication he's stating is, while her husband lives and they're still married, So again, so he's not talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage. While they're still married, then she goes and marries another man. She's guilty of adultery. She's guilty of polygamy. So she goes and marries another man. We've got a whole host of problems here. And in fact, the law then comes against her at that point. The law does not allow for this. This is a violation of it. However, if her husband dies and then she remarries, she's freed of the law. No longer obligated to that. That now releases her to be remarried. All right, so principle stated. Law has dominion over you as long as you are alive. Illustrated. So, like a woman who's married, she's free to get remarried if that husband dies. She can't marry another man while she's still married to her husband who is alive. Number three. The principle applied. Principle applied. So how how does this get to what we talked about? So, So the question about the relationship we have with the law, here's why the gospel is so critical, why the work of Christ is critical, why why it's important that up to this point, Paul has made much of the fact that as believers in Christ, we are joined with Christ. We're in union with Christ. When he died, we died. We've already talked about this in Romans, especially 5, the end of 5, and then then the entirety of chapter 6. Our union with Christ means that when he was crucified, we've been crucified. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, the old man has been crucified. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. By virtue of my fellowship in Christ, all of the benefits of his death now are accrued to me. All right? So, I, I also am considered as being dead in Christ. So, here's how he's going to apply this. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Notice the language. You have become, past tense. Also notice it's passive. Something's been done to you. All right, as a result of the gospel, you have now become dead to the law as a result of the body of Christ. And this is just another reminder to us. When we talk about the gospel... We are talking about the profound blessing of what we call imputation. I know it sounds like a big fancy theological word, but it is your lifeblood. It should be your joy and and exaltation to, to, to know about imputation. Because this means your filthy unrighteousness and sin and rebellion was put on Christ. And God judged Jesus on the cross For your sin. What do you get in exchange for this? The righteousness of Christ is then granted to you. (laughs) We are not worthy. But this is God's grace and mercy. And so what Paul is getting at here with that one little phrase is to remind us of this. Brethren, this is what has happened. Not not only have you been forgiven of sin, but as he said in chapter 6, you've died to sin, and now what else have you done? You have died to the law. This means 
that through the death of Christ, God's justice was satisfied. The expectations of the law have been satisfied in the death of Christ. The the death of death was accomplished in the death of Christ, as the great Puritan John Owen said. This is where our hope and joy is found. The gospel is found in this. So as a result of my union with him, I'm also dead. Dead to the law. No longer is my master. Sin is no longer my master. Doesn't mean I, I, I can't sin, all right? And in fact, more of Romans will get to this. But just as a fundamental theological principle, we recognize this is a profound statement. But then notice how he keeps going here, all right, with the analogy. Again, he's using the marriage thing. But again, you know it doesn't line up, right? In other words, in the analogy, he says the woman's husband dies and now the woman can remarry. In the analogy, he's saying... You're dead, Christ is dead, but Christ is alive, so now you're alive, and so now you can marry Christ. Alright? So it's odd. I don't know what else to tell you. Alright? It's just, it's, it's odd, but as I've said, I didn't write it. I'm not responsible for it. Uh, as I said, I'm not the chef, just the waiter. Alright? So here it is. I'm placing you in front of you. This is the analogy that Paul's making, and it's just a simple one. So that's what he says here, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should do what? Bear fruit. This is the impact of the gospel. Now, this is an important distinction, and he'll flesh this out again in just a minute. But this means that this transition that's happened of being in sin and in the law, in Christ, I'm now dead to that. But that doesn't mean I'm now free to do what I want. My, I've, I've exchanged masters. I had one master. I had one husband. Right? The husband of sin and law. And he was ruthless. He was a tyrant. He was oppressive. That has to change. Otherwise, when I die, in that relationship, I experience eternal death. So I need this transfer to happen. But it's not that I no longer married and now I'm a single guy again. All right? Free to roam and explore. No, no, I'm getting remarried. Again, guys, I'm sorry. It's an odd illustration. I get it. Okay? I read this. Understand he's really talking collectively. The church as the bride of Christ. Uh, because none of us guys would look good in a dress. All right? So, so it's just not... We're not individual brides, though you may hear people use that language that's problematic and, and weird. Alright, so, it's just, it's just weird. But if you use it, again, just in its broadest sense, the church, believers in Christ are now wed to Him. This is how the analogy is designed to be fleshed out. This is why, uh, I, I need to understand my relationship with the law. I am dead in the law. If I'm under the law, I'm then dead. That's it. The law kills me. The law brings a death sentence. So I need to die to that. There's no way out of that. I need to die to that. The only way to do that is for Christ to do it for me. Otherwise, I do it for all eternity. But in Christ, I'm now dead to the law. And so now I'm free to remarry. I'm free now to marry a loving, gracious, kind, merciful, uh, faithful groom. Christ. And the reason all this works is because Christ also died and rose from the dead. And so now that he's raised from the dead, so also I can be raised from the dead, all right? I am one with him in his death and in his resurrection. That's what Romans 6, the beginning part, stated. This is what's illustrated in baptism. So now, I, now I'm free to do what? To bear fruit to God. To bear fruit that's consistent with now having a 
a life in God. I can now bear fruit. That means, by the way, that now what I should see in my life is that which expresses the essence of the commandments. So the law still does have bearing on me. The law still does give me a picture of holiness and obedience and service. It just does it in a particular way. Now, as one who is wed to Christ, what would be the primary fruit? If you go to Galatians 5.22, and Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, the first one is love, right? John 15, when, John, when Jesus talks about the bearing of fruit, what is, what is premier in that? Love. So now I've been transferred from what would be hatred and death under sin and the law to life and love and devotion and being wed to Christ. Now, now again, he's, he's, he's going to go on and, and flesh this out, but notice how he says that in, this in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, meaning the unregenerate part of me, the rebellious, sinful, fallen flesh, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So this is what Paul loves to do. He loves to pit one against the other, two ways, two paths, uh, in sin, in Adam, right, under the law, under grace. I mean, this is, this is what he's doing. Similar kind of thing. So to be, to be wed to Christ is to bear fruit unto God. To be wed to sin is to bear fruit unto death. But he uses an interesting phrase, doesn't he? And it starts to get at at part of the purpose of the law. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. That may sound strange. One, the nature of that language seems really provocative. But I think it's designed to be much more general. Meaning that that what, what happened... You know, when I was in the flesh, then I have these sinful desires. And that, that just means in its most general sense. This desire to fulfill my own flesh. This desire to live in the flesh. This desire to do whatever I want to do in rebellion to God. Paul says these, this tendency, this nature in you, was, was only exacerbated, was only made worse by the law. Now, First blush, that may sound odd. Paul's not blaming the law for your sin, all right? So you can't wiggle out of this one, all right? It's, it's, not, it's not like you're thinking, ah, see, I've always known it. Therapists have said all along, it's not my fault, okay? Nope, they're still wrong. The therapists are still wrong. No, your sin is your fault. But what the law does is it makes it more acute. It shows you how powerful is the desire to break the rules. Now, before you think, I don't know, Pastor, that sounds kind of odd. So this law is out there, and when I know the law, that somehow feeds my flesh? Of course it does. When you know what you're not supposed to do, what do you want to do? Do it. Right? I can tell you, when I was, uh, when I was young, my middle brother was going off to college. Before he went off to college, he got one of those little you know, dorm room refrigerators, and he got to put it in his room before he moved. He got to put it in his room, and my parents then also let him buy a bag of Snickers. You know, what they call fun size, which is really ridiculous. I've, I've shared my theory of this. Fun size would be like a five-pound Snickers bar, all right? The, the small ones aren't fun. They're aggravating, all right? It's just, it's a tease. 
Nonetheless, that's what he had. All right. And, and I was given this instruction. All right. So refrigerator, because everybody knows the Snickers is better when it's cold. All right. So that's not an opinion, by the way. Anyway, so the Snickers is in the refrigerator in a bag. I am. So my brother's 18. So I'm about 13 years old. And I'm told by my parents, can't eat the Snickers unless your brother says so. My brother says, I'd be glad to give you Snickers if you ask for it, but you can't eat it on your own. So what do I do? My brother has to go out. I hear the door going to the garage shut. I make my way to his room. I open up the refrigerator. I have a Snickers out of the bag in my mouth and I hear a voice behind me. Scott, what are you doing? I shove it in. I turn around and I say, nothing. Really, my brother had come back in. I didn't hear the door open. He'd come back in. He'd forgotten something. Came back in. What are you doing? So caught red handed. And in fact, man, I was a sneaky little guy because here's what I did. I had another one in my hand. All right. And I said, I was getting one for you. All right. So that tells you, tells you something about this guy. All right. I'm much sweeter now. All right. Just rest assured, not nearly as cunning. Now, now, if there had not been a refrigerator, a bag of Snickers, and a rule, what would have happened? Nothing. Now, does that mean that I did not possess the ability to break the rules and to lie about it? No, I still possess that ability, right? That didn't just come out of nowhere. I had that in my heart, all right? I had the ability to do that. That was within me. But when the refrigerator, the Snickers, and the rules showed up, it did what? It aroused the sinful desires. Just as another illustration, by the way, this still happens in adulthood. Time of confession here for you. How many of you are like me? You probably don't want to say yes to this, do you, after that other story. How many of you are like me in that uh, when you're at a restaurant, the waiter or waitress brings the plate of food and says, don't touch the plate, it's hot. How many of you touch it? Come on, come on. How many of you touch it? All right. You do it for two reasons. Number one, you don't tell me if I can touch this plate or not. You're not the boss of me. I touch this plate if I want to. Number two, I want to know what you mean by hot, right? So that's why I do it. I touch it for both reasons, but I touch it. What do you, what do I think when I see a sign? Don't walk on the grass. You know what I want to do? Man, I want to walk on that grass. Who do you think you are, sign? You're not the boss of me, right? This is the human heart. Now, this is worse pre-gospel. That's what he's getting at here. So when you were in the flesh, this is what the law does. This is why the law is such a harsh taskmaster for unbelievers, because this is all the law does. The law shows me who I really am. And then what does that law do? That law then just just causes. I say cause. It's not the law's fault. But what happens is that desire then just kicks in so that I pursue nothing but what is a sinful heart. And what does that bear? Fruit unto death. And then we've got this great phrase, the turn. But now it's a great phrase in Romans. Says again in verse six, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. For what purpose? So that we could be free, autonomous, make our own decisions. No, that's a terrible way to live. All right. Having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What a great turn of phrase. So we've been remarried. 
And we've been, we're able to be remarried because we're, we're dead to the law. All right. Again, I know it's not an exact match, but that's what he's saying. We, we have to, in order to serve in fullness, in order to be righteous in God's eyes and to do that which is consistent with righteousness, I first must die to the law because the law points out my sin and the law arouses my sin and my sin is aroused. And when it's aroused, the law then comes back in and says, yes, you deserve death for this. This is a vicious cycle of what it means to be unregenerate. But the gospel radically transformed me. And as a result, I've been transferred from being married to the law and sin to being married to Christ. And what does that free me to do? Serve in the newness of the spirit. Now, Paul mentioned spirit here. You're going to want to hold on to that because in chapter eight, he's going to get all up in our business about the role of the Holy Spirit. All right. For now, he just kind of teases us with it. He won't mention the Spirit really again throughout the rest of the chapter, but he's going to come back around to it then in chapter 8. But this is this again is, is forming what is another answer to that question. Of course the, of, of course the, the law means something. Because pre-conversion, it is a death sentence, and that's important. I need to know that. But post-conversion, the law now shows me the path to what it looks like to to serve in the newness of the Spirit. I don't serve according to old, the oldness of the letter. It's not a legalistic thing where I'm attempting now to earn the grace that God's given to me. Instead, through the gospel, I'm now freed from death and sin and the law so that now I can live in obedience and righteousness. In fact, the imagery of, of marriage, I think, is the fitting image here, is it not? It's a great analogy, and especially saying now you can live in the newness of the Spirit. Because what does marriage do? Does marriage impact all of your life? Is marriage a change from when you were single? Did anybody experience any change from being single to being married? Are there any adjustments at that point? Yes. Yes. And you can't ask my wife what those were, all right? But they were legion, all right? In other words, there would have been many for my dear, precious wife. Nonetheless, that, that, is, the, that is the case because marriage is life-consuming. This is just another reminder. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about some kind of nifty, you know, little self-help, self-improvement work from God. We were under a life-deadening reality. In being married to sin and law. And now we are under a life-giving reality through the gospel. And, and now that means we're in a new marriage. And though I don't want to push this analogy too far, but perhaps it would be helpful to think, what were those first days of marriage like, right? Blissful love, right? Serving, kind, gracious, uh, sacrificial now, we don't have to talk about what happens later. All right, some things, you know, it becomes a little different, perhaps. We understand the nature of trying to learn what it means to be married. It's easier to be married at the beginning than, than longer. We all know that, that, in other words, it continues to take discipline and practice and focus. Is that not a great analogy of Christian living? Absolutely it is. That, that I've now been given the opportunity to live in the newness of the Spirit and, I, and that means then, what is, the, what is the foundational reality of Christian living? Love, devotion, sacrifice. No, no longer under the tyrant of sin. I, I'm, I'm under a good and gracious groom. 
Church, we are under a good and kind, benevolent, sacrificial groom. And so as we think about the nature of our life lived in service to Him, are we living this life that should be, that should experience a, a total impact from the gospel? Or are we as a church, as believers in His church, maybe not very good brides? Are we serving in the newness of the Spirit? Now my appeal, of course, this morning is the same as it is every morning. First, to those who may not know Christ, I mean, you very clearly hear, if you have never submitted to the gospel, and you've been in any of our messages about Romans, I hope and pray that the Spirit is convicting you and showing you, you are in a dangerous place. And that the only hope for you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you confess your sin, that you trust Christ crucified and resurrected, ask for God's forgiveness based on what Christ has done. That is the only hope of salvation. And I would implore you to do that. I'll be down front if you'd like to know more about that as we have an invitation and, and we, we, we sing again about the goodness of God's salvation to us. I would invite you to come. If you'd like me to talk more with you about that, I'd be glad to do that. But then maybe as a believer, you look at your life and you say, uh, the truth is I've become comfortable with the groom. In other words, my, my life is not lived in service that's consistent with the newness of the Spirit. Maybe there is that which perhaps demonstrates you've allowed yourself to slip back to the old life that you're supposed to be dead to. And so maybe you just want to come and kneel here and pray, asking God's forgiveness. God, God is a good God and is ready to receive you back into fellowship. Not to be saved again, but to come back and, and walking in wholeness with Him. Maybe that's where God would lay his word on your heart today. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then this time will be open to you to respond as the Lord would lead. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship, to come together and worship under your word. We thank you for your word, for its clarity and impact on our lives. We pray, Lord, you would now by your spirit. Bring this word to bear on us that we would find ourselves in submission to it. That you would use it to continue to form and make us into the people you design us to be, and that as we respond in obedience to to your word, that you would be glorified through all that happens in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.